This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued an eviction moratorium that went into effect last September and was initially slated to extend until the end of the year. But the order ended up being extended several times, both by Congress and by the CDC, until it expired last week at the end of July. After a several-day lapse, the Biden administration announced this Tuesday that the CDC would institute its own eviction ban that would run through October 3rd and apply to, quote, counties experience substantial and high levels of community transition levels, unquote, of COVID-19. Under this, state and local programs would be able to both up their community's vaccination rates and distribute rent relief. But Biden's new moratorium immediately drew fire from the constitutional scholars who questioned the moratorium's legal authority. It also appeared to contradict the White House's own message that the CDC lacked authority to institute this and that this was actually the responsibility of Congress. When Congress went into a multi-week recess last week, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky explained the reversal as part of an issue with the Delta variant. And she said, quote, the emergence of the Delta variant has led to a rapid acceleration of community transmission in the United States, putting more Americans at increased risk, especially if they are unvaccinated. The moratorium is the right thing to do to keep people in their homes and out of congregate settings where COVID-19 spreads. We want to discuss what these moratoriums mean from a constitutional perspective and from a landlord and client point of view as well. And also how we might think through these issues as a Christian. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, I know there's a lot of different policy and law things that are being mentioned here, but I would love to hear your take, whether it is more on the political side or more thinking about this issue from a housing perspective. What are your thoughts and feelings? Yeah. We ran a really great uh, piece by Becca McNeil in our March issue on Christian lawyers title on it online is Christian Lawyers Fight COVID-19 Home Evictions, looking at Christian legal aid clinics, work on some of these issues. I have long been a big fan of the work that Christian legal aid organizations are doing. My father-in-law was kind of the founding president of Christian Legal Services of Cleveland. He especially did more employment law than housing law, but also they did a lot of housing stuff there. My wife and I, you know, were, were donors to um, some Christian legal clinic groups. So love, <laughs> love some of the work they're, they're <laughs> doing and love, love a lot of the work that they're doing on behalf of people who are, man, long, long rows to hoe uh, on housing issues. So I've got that part of my heart. The other, the other part of my heart is 
reading uh, Biden's comments this week where he said about the the expected legal challenges to his eviction moratorium, this federal eviction moratorium, and especially when he said, well, you know, the bulk of the constitutional scholarship says it's not likely to pass constitutional muster, but by the time it gets litig- litigated, it'll give us some additional time getting, you know, that $45 billion out to people who are behind in rent and don't have the money. I'm like, wow, like that, this probably is illegal, but we're going to just going to go ahead and do it. And by the time it gets through the courts, it, it'll, it'll be, it'll be moot. My mind, in some ways, I just was like, "Man, this that sounds like the stuff we yelled at Donald Trump for doing." Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, a little bit torn uh, on this. I love people working on behalf of poor folks who are being evicted. I also have read some, you know, fair, fairly compelling stuff from, for example, Bonnie Christian, who's one of our columnists for CT, but is a column she wrote for the Week. We should be troubled by some of the framing uh, of Biden's uh, eviction moratorium. I'm like, yeah, that that seems right to me too. So I'm eager to talk to someone who can help to suss some of this out and help me think better. How about you, Morgan? What's your what's your gut check? Yeah i I feel like I don't actually understand everything that moratoriums do or don't. But and and so some of my questions are probably going to be a little rudimentary for this episode. For instance, you know, how do our people, our landlords, actually getting paid when this happens? Does it just prevent you from evicting people? How you know how do these actually play out on the ground, and how do they come alongside existing tenant protections that exist? I also have a lot of questions about how they work in light of the fact that we know that at least for some people or some people have experienced the economy's recovery very strong. What is the rationale, I guess, for why we are continuing to keep these into effect? Basically, what is different about how people's housing situation looks like right now under COVID versus in normal housing crisis? I don't know if people are familiar with the book Evicted, I guess since I read that, I should be more of an expert on this. I definitely recommend the book and it gives a lot of really great perspective. But I think anyone who reads it comes away with the fact that there's just a big issue with um, people being able to stay in their homes. And that is very challenging for a lot of people to find and secure housing over the long term. And so I am interested in understanding better about what is happening now during the pandemic that is uniquely making it really challenging versus how hard it is for a lot of people in general. So I guess if I was going to sum up my gut check, it's a little bit uninformed, which I think this podcast will help solve. Who is our guest today to discuss all of this? Our guest today is uh, Nicole Stewart. She is legal director for Open Hands Legal Services in Manhattan. She's been a public interest lawyer in New York City since 2008 and focuses on housing laws and evictions. And we're thrilled to have her on the show. As you, as you heard, I am a big fan of uh, Christian legal service organizations so, and clinics. So thanks for, thanks for taking some time out and coming on the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. Let's start with a little bit of background. As Morgan said, I think a lot of us are unfamiliar <laughs> with how we got to this point. And it starts with a fair bit of unity, right? Congress set aside almost $45 billion to make sure that 
you know, that people wouldn't be forced out of their homes. And it had a bipartisan support. There had support from landlords and from renters advocates. And yet I saw this article from Politico that says of only 6.5% of the total aid that Congress has allocated to this has actually gone out to folks who need, who need rental aid. Is that, is that one of the key things that has led up to this more current debate over the last, the last few weeks? The Emergency Rental Assistance Program, which is the, the federal funds that were rolled out state by state, has been really the game changer from the perspective I'm coming from, which is assisting tenants who may be uh, facing evictions and also as it pertains to making landlords whole. From what I've heard in New York, there have been some delays in the money being distributed, but we are certainly doing these applications. These applications are happening every day in New York. They can be done by both tenants or landlords, so it doesn't necessarily have to be initiated by the tenant. But I I think the money is coming. It's taking a little longer than maybe people thought, but it's been a ray of hope from my perspective. I'm going to lean into some of the ignorance that I <laughs> just showed a couple minutes ago. When moratoriums like this get issued, they come alongside rent relief, government-funded rent relief plans at the same time. Is that correct? I'm not sure about that. I, I don't think so. But I can't speak for sure about that. I mean, the Public Health Service Act is what ostensibly gave the CDC power to, it gives wide latitude to the Surgeon General to stop the spread of communicable diseases. And then there's a section, it's 42 USC section 70.2, that gives wide latitude to a director of a CDC to sort of take measures to prevent the spread of communicable diseases from state to state. I am aware of some of the new developments as far as what the Supreme Court has indicated, the way that it has indicated it will lean if there was a further moratorium granted. I think the president, by making it more nuanced, was was trying to address that issue, although I, I certainly understand the confusion. And I am no constitutional law scholar. I'm just a lowly housing lawyer. As far as the ERAP, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program goes, I think that was rolled out in in response to just the drastic financial consequences that resulted from the COVID pandemic. And as far as it pertains to landlords and tenants, as well as utilities, there was just a massive loss of employment among certain groups, particularly among what I would call sort of the working poor or certain classes of immigrants. So specifically, a lot of renters lost domestic jobs, food service jobs. 
And so they struggled to pay the rent. And when the UI, the unemployment benefits, there was additional pandemic assistance available for a period of time, which allowed uh, more tenants to be able to remain current on their rent. When that ended, the additional assistance, we did see a, a big uptick in people not being able to pay the rent at that point again. So, and right now, some jobs have returned among those sex, and but the hours aren't necessarily what they were. So the the ERAP I see is really filling a gap that's that is that needs to be filled. Nicole, could you give us a sense of what your job looked like in February 2020 versus midway through 2020 last year? I've always assisted people who are struggling. Generally, the reason people don't pay rent is because they're struggling financially in some way. So in that sense, that sort of has always been my role to sort of bridge that gap and try to obtain monies, you know, and along with other legal things that may be involved there. But what I think was the biggest game changer between February and mid last year was the amount of people who were affected, the specific groups that were affected who didn't necessarily qualify for unemployment benefits. I'm talking particularly about certain classes of immigrants, the food service jobs where, you know, had difficulty obtaining unemployment benefits in a timely fashion, sometimes because of the part-time nature of their work. So it just became a lot more people that were struggling financially to pay the rent. And there was not, mid-2020, there was really not a lot of hope on the horizon because nobody knew what was going to happen. I don't remember when the talks about federal monies were going, but it hadn't be, it hadn't come to fruition yet. So it was sort of a wait and see game and it was nobody knew what was going to happen. And I think one thing I just wanted to clarify, which I think you um, were discussing a couple minutes ago, but it sounds like these eviction moratoriums have sometimes come with rent relief packages like the government will actually pay for people's rent. Is that correct? As I understand it, I sort of see the moratorium as something separate from the monies that are flowing. The moratorium was a measure that was taken in order to sort of prevent the spread of the pandemic. The idea being, if um, you read the CDC order, the idea underlying it was if people had to double up in homes or become homeless, the spread would be worse. So there's that component. But all the while, you've got a moratorium on evictions. And if someone can't pay rent, we have rent accruing. So then you have the ERAP portion of this, the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, which provides the basically the funding for all of the rent that has accrued during the moratorium as a result of employment loss or financial hardship that occurred as a result of COVID. So the ERAP monies are here. They've been, as far as I know, distributed, you know, are to the states. 
So for instance, you can go to the U.S. Department of Treasury web- website and you can find, there's a button you can click that says find rental assistance in your area. And state by state and even within states, uh, we'll have cities or counties where you go, you know, click on there to apply for the rental assistance. So the applications are live and are happening. And now we're just sort of waiting on the approvals and the money to come through. But as far as I know, there, that is imminent. I'm curious how the legal services work that you've been doing has changed um, over COVID, especially as some of these programs have been approved. Is it now largely about helping people get new kinds of paperwork together? Is it still very much court appearances? Like what's been changing about some of the legal aid? Oh, gosh. A lot. <laughs> the access to courts has been a huge issue, I think, both from both perspectives, tenants and landlords. But, you know, here in New York, where on any given day, you've got hundreds of cases in landlord-tenant court, or also called housing courts here, there was a full stop on personal appearances in court. So that sort of exacerbated technology gaps, particularly among unrepresented tenants. But then largely our legal aid has been over the phone. We've just recently started reestablishing in-person legal aid desks, but the phone traffic was heavy. There were a lot of people in need. And Now, you know, it looks like some of those changes will be here to stay as far as virtual court appearances. And there's a lot of back and forth about the fairness of that. But that and a lot of applications, the sheer volume of applications for assistance is much more than it had been. The biggest changes is the access to courts, the technology gap. Those were some really big um, changes and then just sort of switching from the in-person, you know, consultations to, to phone consultations. Give us a sense of how you would work with clients who would come with you prior to the pandemic. I don't think many people listening to the show are super familiar with different tenant protections that might exist for clients or what the average case looks like. Are people coming to you the first month they can't pay rent? Are people coming to you the third month that they can't pay rent? How does this normally play out? New York is sort of a little bit different, I think, than a lot of other states in the sense that the amount, the the number of renters here is much more than most other parts of the country. So volume is always an issue. And plus, you're talking about one of the most expensive places (laughs) to live in the United States. So there's a lot of need out there. Often the demand for legal services in this area outweighs the supply of advocates. But essentially, most legal service agencies will take on someone who needs assistance when they are in court, when they receive court papers. Our organization is a little bit different. We provide advice and advocacy sometimes prior to that point so that they can sort of avoid 
the the legal problem, but a lot of times the monies that are available through the city and state are sort of tied to that eviction proceeding. It's kind of hard to get in front of these problems sometimes. But at the end of the day, it often comes down to money. That's the reality of the situation. If there's employment and there's a source of income, it's a lot better situation than when there's not. So how long does it take for the the court to get involved? Maybe you can give us an example of what a typical case looks like from when this person stops paying rent to how long it takes for eviction papers to be served. Generally, there are some due process like procedures in place. So for instance, you need to notify, and we're talking just strictly about payment of rent, not any other reasons to evict, to try to evict a tenant. From a strictly non-payment perspective, typically there would be required a notice, a notification to the renter of what they owed, the months they owed. And that would be in writing. And then there would be a generally a court proceeding to determine whether, in fact, that was true. In certain states, there are uh, funds available from the city or state. Here in New York, it's called a one-shot deal. So when you're falling on hard times and you lost your job or something, some financial loss happened, you can apply for monies to basically bridge that gap. It's sort of a grant, sort of a loan to pay the landlord for those months you weren't able to pay. And that's the typical relief that's sought here. That that varies a lot state by state. There are also charities, churches who will help people in those types of situations. But typically they would receive a notice that there's now a court proceeding. They would need to show up in court, determine if there are any defenses. Like, let's say, you know, maybe the landlord isn't making repairs. So there may be some basis to withhold some of the rent for that reason. And there are other potential or maybe they missed a payment that came in the mail, something like that. Basically, you know, both sides sort of get to say what they need to say. And then there's either um, some type of payment plan that's that's um, put into place or a judge determines whether the tenant would need to be evicted for not being able to pay. But in your experience, do almost all the cases that you end up working with end up leading to evictions? I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but no, the opposite. <laughs> that's kind of what, what I'm in the business of is eviction prevention. So we're lucky in New York that there are a lot of different avenues and there's also a lot of pretty strong tenant protections in place, although you're also... Uh, balancing that with a very, very strong real estate industry. It sort of needs to be that way to balance it out. But typically, we will be able to sort of obtain monies, assert any defenses that are necessary, but then ultimately obtain monies to, you know, to make the parties whole and and sort of put it behind us, (laughs) so to speak. You were talking about all these different renter protections that exist or tenant protections that they that exist. Can you go into them in a little bit more detail and how they end up serving the tenant in their various challenges? Here in New York, there are a whole body of laws called uh, rent regulation laws. So if you live in an apartment that has a regulated rent, and those are specific types of buildings with specific numbers, you know, large buildings built before a certain year you have a whole additional layer of protections 
But in general, I would say basic due process protections are probably available in all states. It's not a situation where a landlord could do like a self-help eviction where they just sort of change the locks one day on you. I think generally most states have those kind of basic due process requirements in place that, you know, basically give the, the, the tenant an opportunity to address what's, what's alleged as, as owed, address the situation in whatever way they can. Sometimes it can't be addressed because you can't get money from a pot where there, where there is no money. Sometimes it does end up that way. But as far as I know, self-help evictions are, are not allowed in, in most all states. But beyond that, if it's not a special type of housing where you're getting some type of federal subsidy or it's not protected by a, a certain state's rent regulation laws, which, again, the only states I'm aware of that have those are New York and California, I think you're basically looking at sort of a basic court process to determine whether there can be a payback schedule. But that. That's a negotiation that that has to um, be approved by both parties generally. Otherwise, it's can you pay? If so, when? If not, you know, you may not be able to remain there. I think with the the pandemic and these ERAP monies, what's another exciting component from a uh, perspective of representing tenants is these ERAP monies are available to immigrants who normally are not eligible for this relief. And they've been very hard hit, particularly in domestic jobs during and food service jobs during the pandemic. Many of them have citizen children. So this is really exciting in that way because it will assist sort of the most vulnerable in our society while also, you know, bridging that gap. Bridging the gap, I'm just curious about like what an eviction moratorium affords. Like, what are the what are the benefits that we've seen? What are some of the challenges? I've read, for example, that the one of the concerns about the federal eviction moratorium is that if the money's not kind of moving through the system, that it basically will drive out a lot of smaller scale landlords, but that the kind of uh, larger big corporate landlords will be able to lose their competition. They'll be able to survive it, but the smaller landlords wouldn't. I know a number of uh, smaller landlords who have properties. Some of them have some retirement income, but some of them are doing, are landlords also trying to help, help people with, with housing and some of the housing issues. What does an eviction moratorium obviously one thing that's meant to do is to like give people more time to pull that money together to pay their rent. But what are some of the positive and negative effects that you're seeing in your work? It's really been mainly positive in the sense that it's put a hold, like you said, and sometimes a stop on evictions, giving people time to basically get back on their feet financially. My understanding is that a lot of smaller landlords can take advantage of different types of foreclosure moratoriums as well. And there are also sort of some small business reliefs that may be available to them 
as far as the money goes. I think one thing is if it's a smaller landlord that can sort of hang in there a little bit, it really behooves them at this point to sort of cooperate in the process of obtaining the ERAP monies. We've seen some smaller landlords who maybe are confused about the process here because they do have to provide a few documents in support of the applications for the monies. Because here in New York, those monies will pay up to 12 months of back rent and even potentially three months of prospective rent. I think that both parties uh, cooperate to try to, to to make people whole. But certainly, I think probably from a landlord perspective, what would may have been frustrating is not being able to use the courts during that period. There were exceptions in New York to that. Like, for instance, if it was a troublesome tenant that was you know, causing a nuisance, then that would be an exception to the moratorium. The judge would hear that situation and make a determination as to whether it, it could proceed. But for the, for the non-payment cases, if you were experiencing financial hardship as a result of COVID and you provided a declaration to that effect here, similar to the CDC declaration, then that would put a hold on the eviction proceeding. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. I want to kind of get into your faith a little bit. When you first got into this type of work, did you see a direct connection there between your faith and and how has your faith changed as you've continued doing it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this was kind of work I just sort of fell into in some ways that the housing part, but when I started, it was just like, oh, this is what I was supposed to do. (laughs) And I think You know, when I've had my own twists and turns in my faith life earlier on, you know, I sort of lost my way for a period of time, but came back. And certainly now I see almost everything I do from that perspective. All of the talents that I've been given are from God, even with this money, the the money that's come through that the federal government has provided to, to pay the debts. And to me, it's just a gift from God sort of swooping in for those who who were the most vulnerable in our society and tend to have the strongest faith I think my clients teach me so much every day about faith and sort of just the patience that it takes sometimes when we can't see the answers and we don't know the solution I heard something this morning that really resonated with me as far as what we've learned from the from this. I can't remember if I mentioned another thing that we saw a lot during the pandemic was actually food insecurity, particularly among immigrant populations, because they didn't qualify for the unemployment benefits. They were having trouble getting food to feed their families. So that sort of went, you know, part and parcel with the housing, sort of those basic needs that could not be met. And the thing I heard this morning was, 
when we are strong, we help those who are weak. When we are weak, we pray and hope for those who are strong to assist us. And I felt that that was very true during COVID because it really impacted people very differently, different groups, and it wasn't all sort of the same. So I really like that idea of helping, giving when we have it, and then asking for the help when we need it. We've been talking about some of your clients very generally, but I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to get a better sense of who the people you you work with are more personally. Can you talk about a client um, or two that has had a impact on your faith and explain why working with them has had that effect? I've seen sort of the gamut of issues. A lot of people that I've assisted during the pandemic have been, as I mentioned a couple times, domestic workers in the immigrant population and just being able to assist them with getting the food benefits that they needed and now the housing benefits. There's a a lady in particular who she's a single working mother of two school-aged children. The parents know (laughs) during the pandemic that was a whole other issue with the children being home and being able to work and and that kind of thing. But it was really rewarding. She had basically had food insecurity for the last eight months as a result of not having access to the in-person facilities that at the, you know, the local centers for, for food assistance. We were able to help her get a whole lot of back benefits and ongoing benefits. And now she can apply for the back rent and she's been making partial payments as much as she could every month to the landlord. We're assisting a family of four, a lady who works in the food service industry, who they've really been trying to make payments during this time. And it's just been really hard because at times they've been subsisting on an uh, income of one unemployment benefits. They have special needs children who had to be home for remote school. They had gone through a period also in that particular situation of harassment by the landlord when initially they were not able to make the full payment. So now, thankfully, that has been less and we've been able to apply for the relief. Hours have increased at work but are still fluctuating. So there's just a lot of different groups of people that have been affected that it looks like help is on the way with these monies because it will provide them with the relief to pay their rent in whole right those monies will go directly to the landlords for the back rent and they also provide for money for utilities i wanted to ask you specifically about evictions themselves as we've gone through this pandemic, I've seen different people that I follow on Twitter speak from personal experience about evictions. What have you learned about what the long-term impacts that evictions have on people who experience them? From what I've seen, it's often experienced as a trauma. I've actually had clients particularly for some reason, older adults 
who have been evicted and they very vividly remember that experience and are so afraid of that ever happening again. And so that makes me think that it must be experienced as a trauma when something happens to you and then you think it, it might happen again because it was so it was so intense. And I can imagine that that would be particularly true for children as well who have experience because it's sort of one of those situations where it's like you're in the house when the marshal comes and it's the time after the proper notice and everything. And if there's no way to sort of avoid it, you know, it becomes a situation where everyone has to leave, you know, just with the, the bag of medications or whatever, and the door is locked and, and you can't get back in, you know, for your belongings or anything else until a certain procedures have been set. So it's definitely something that most people try to avoid at all costs. And this, this is also sometimes happen where people's belongings are physically removed from the home as well? That's illegal here. You can remove them, but they need to be stored for a period of time in a secure location by a landlord. But often there's a period of time where they're able to go and remove their items for certain periods of, of time. Gotcha. Obviously, one of the points of the show is to help our listeners be able to think about these things from Christian perspectives. What are questions around housing here in the States and other related issues that you would love for Christians to be wrestling with more and asking themselves more? As Christians, we, we have a duty to be compassionate to those in need and also sort of recognize our own surplus in, in a time where other people may be having maybe in debt or in need of sort of basic basic requirements to live, food, shelter, that type of thing. And I think we're so blessed to live in a country where we're able to help people who are in need. And I think it's important at this time to sort of cultivate that patience to the extent that that you're able to let these reliefs come. And I think that the housing, it's the idea that everyone deserves to sort of live with dignity. And I think Christians particularly understand that. I'm thinking in particular about the client I had mentioned, the ones who worked in the food service industry with the children at home, they've had a very serious cockroach infestation throughout both prior to the pandemic and during. And it's been a struggle to have that addressed. At the same time, from my perspective, I see them doing everything they can to be current with their obligations. On both sides, there's a recognition that most people want to do the right thing. And sometimes they're not able to. And so we as Christians need to make sure that they have the resources and and to do so to the extent they're available and and our compassion and and mercy. Mercy plays a huge role in this because I've certainly seen many uh, landlords, both big and small, their reaction to this. I've had several people I've helped who their landlords have not been pressuring them 
because maybe they're taking advantage of some reliefs that are available to them, or maybe they're in a, a better situation. But it's, it's kind of nice to see that sort of patience and mercy at work as well. Has there been a specific landlord that you have been, you have seen being willing to extend mercy even at a personal sacrifice to themselves? Well, I don't know that I know their circumstances that closely, but as far as whether it's a sacrifice to themselves, but certainly not pressuring people who are trying to obtain employment or financial assistance, I think it is testament to that patience and mercy. As opposed to the harassment, which was kind of really prevalent at the beginning of the pandemic when we sort of didn't know what was going to happen. There, there was an uptick in those type of situations here. Thankfully, that has relented a bit. And I think that can be attributed to some of the reliefs that have become available. How might you encourage our listeners um, who may not be directly affected everything, but obviously after this episode now feel like they care a lot um, about the situation to pray for it? I, I personally pray specifically for, for certain clients and particularly those who I'm kind of out of solutions for. That Those are the ones I really sort of place in, in God's hands. But I think just sort of praying also for the vision to see when someone is in need, they might not be talking about it or wanting to display that. There may be people in your own neighborhood who are in these certain types of jobs or do certain types of work that you know, were really affected by the pandemic. They may be really struggling with even basic insecurities and basic needs. So I guess just praying for the the eyes to see if you're in a place of abundance where you can pro- provide for that need. Thank you very much for joining the show and giving us a sense of the work that you're doing and what housing in New York City looks like these days. For people who have comments, questions, reactions, we imagine that there's a lot of variety In terms of how you may have experienced this, if you are a listener to our show, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And we would definitely appreciate hearing from you on this topic. Now is the time on the podcast we call Slow to Speak. It's basically our word for reading your letters to us, and we appreciate these letters quite a bit. Morgan's got the first one here. This letter is from Matthew. He said, you put free podcast content out there, but make it a bit strange to submit feedback, at least without being a subscriber. You do well to be more open to more convenient feedback. It might provide valuable input. Point number two, the Billionaires in Space podcast of Quick to Listen is titled as a question, Should Christians Celebrate? But the content of the podcast was basically, quote, 100 reasons Christians should celebrate. No counterpoints or challenging follow-ups to the guest presentation at all. Quote, maybe you have to be a billionaire now to take a leisurely space flight, but don't worry, costs will come down. Another quote, people might think feeding hungry people is a better use of money, but they haven't considered vomit comet research. Quote, people may think Bezos is out of touch, but they don't realize he wants to put all humanity in orbit and make the planet a nature preserve. 
end quote. I don't believe in presenting both sides just for the sake of fake both sidesism, but this episode was just an advertisement for Billionaires in Space Part 2. Thank you, Matt, for listening. I have to say I'm a little bit confused because I do feel like that podcast and many other podcasts that we put out there, we tell people to email us all the time. Podcast at Christianity.com. In case people were wondering, Matt's question came via our customer service channel. But Matt, that is truly the best way to get in touch with us. You have our email address, the show's email address, and we invite you to email us whenever with your feedback. Podcasts at ChristianityToday.com. And speaking of, here's one that came in through that channel from regular correspondent Nick. Dear Morgan and Ted, I have to admit that when I heard the intro for the episode on billionaires in space, I let out a groan. Oh, here we go again. I expected another long Christian whine over how the, quote, rich should spend their money. And by comparison, how much more compassionate and spiritual we are than them. Instead, I was very pleasantly surprised by the fair and level-headed response by Mark Shellhammer. His comments were refreshingly well thought out both in the unforeseen benefits that come from scientific research and what people who make ungodly amounts of money are free to do with their riches. I think it's important to keep in mind that, by comparison, everyone who lives in the United States is ridiculously wealthy with enough disposable income to make a serious impact all over the planet. And the next time you make a phone call or get in a car, use a credit card, watch TV, turn on an electric light, remember that every one of these things started out as an overpriced, self-indulgent luxury for the wealthy. Anyway, keep up the good work, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Two different perspectives on the space thing. So yeah, we, we don't usually do like a pro-con, and we hadn't known that our guest that week was uh, also a consultant to some of these human spaceflight plans. We knew he was a researcher in that area, but didn't know he was also a paid consultant, but that, that worked out fine for us. Sometimes we have more advocacy-driven guests. Sometimes we have more academic guests. We try to vary things up for folks, but we're glad that there's differing opinions on on how last week's went. Thank you to both Nick and Matthew. I have one more piece of feedback. This one came in through a different channel. This was left as an iTunes review from someone named Cedric's mom. Hi, Cedric's mom. I love quick to listen and listen to the show regularly. One general comment, please stop down speaking. Ted Olson does this a lot and it drives me crazy. <laughs> he begins his sentences at one volume but by the time he's nearing <laughs> the end of the sentence, he's speaking so quietly that I cannot hear him. Don't drop off the cliff, brother. Speak up. Grandma can't hear what you're saying. Carry on. Well, thank you, Cedric's mom and whoever's grandma that may be. I appreciate it. Know that I'm aware of that and I'm trying to I'm trying to get better at it, but sometimes it's just... Thank you, Cedric's mom, for sharing that. Well, the best place to just send us notes about Production stuff, too, is also via our email. That kind of stuff is better as an email than as our lead iTunes review. But I appreciate it. I still appreciate it. And you know what, you know what I really appreciate, Cedric's mom? is She left that under a five-star review. So, so thank you for not taking a star off my down speaking. <laughs> it, it just reinforces the point. It's like, I'm not going to not keep listening. But if I am going to keep listening all the time, just change this one thing. And we're open to those feedbacks. Keep sending us stuff. All right. Send us an email. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Go ahead, Ted. I've shared this before, but I have really been enjoying a morning Anglican morning prayer. I'm an Anglican 
And it has been uh, a nice, cool week here in, in, in Illinois. I've been doing it on my walk to work and walking to work every day this week from my home. It's been a lovely walk and doing morning prayer, including at least once live with folks in my church. It's brought me a lot of joy, especially getting into the Psalms. I've really appreciated that. I use, there's a couple of different podcasts that I use for this thing, but my the, the main morning prayer podcast that I use is one of the older ones. And there might even be better ones out there, but the one I use is called Morning Prayer from the Episcopal Church in Garrett County, which when I first started listening to it, drove me nuts because it's got all this kind of like Native American flute music in the background. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, do not uh, try to make this more, you know, spiritual sounding than it needs to be with Native American flute music. But I've actually come to appreciate it over time. And so that's my, <laughs> that's my joy. That's my recommendation this week. Is it like Morning the Morning Prayer pipe? Podcast from Gwinnett County. What's that? Is it like the pan pipes? Uh, it, kind of. Yeah. It's actually a single, a sing, it's not the pan pipes. It's a single flute from a, a guy named uh, Carlos Nakai. But yeah, that's the Native American artist who does it. It's, it's pretty old school music, but you know, it, now it's musical cues to get me in, in the mode. There's more contemporary stuff out there. There's a really great Compline podcast that's put out from some po- folks I really like at Sanford uh, University, but that they're only doing it as, as Compline. So morning prayer is where, where it's at for me. So yeah, <laughs> that's kind of my, my call to prayer. It's kind of like, you know, how they used to have the church bells in the neighborhood who would kind of call you to prayer. That, this, there's that very 70s sounding Native American flute kind of calls me to prayer, but now it's what I used to hate. Now I, I find joy in. There's something there. People can find me online at Ted Olson with an E, or they can email me here at Christianity Today. Morgan, what's been bringing you joy this week? I was trying to think of what should be my precious moment. And I think I'm going to have to go with the obvious one because I think it is cloudy my ability to think through anything else that I did this weekend. Like I truly cannot remember what I did on Saturday. And I think the answer is because my precious moment has to be the Olympics, which I know we talked about on last week's episode. Same. I don't even know if it's my precious moment. It's just the only moment. I've just had one uninterrupted Olympic moment. Okay, but. I am actually going to uh, now. Are you just watching NBC coverage? I I, I ponied up the ten bucks to get uh, slings so I can watch some of the I could watch some of the events that that aren't yes. getting a lot of airtime on NBC. So at ten o'clock Hawaii time, which is actually not a great time for something to start, even though it's better than what it would be if I lived on the mainland. It's not great because I should probably go to bed around that time. They have been doing the sport climbing finals. I don't know if people know what sport climbing is, but it is a combination of number one, you try speed climbing, which is essentially when you scramble up this wall. Yeah. So it is that it is bouldering, which is when you're not wearing the harness and you're just trying to climb up these different walls and then top rope, which is when you are in a harness and you have to climb up. I have not been able to stay up late enough to watch the top rope any of the nights. But essentially what the Olympics did is they said, we're going to give one rock climbing medal. So we're going to take these three things that actually in the rock climbing world don't go together at all. Normally the speed climbing is very separate from bouldering and so forth. And we're going to put them together and then you can get one medal, (laughs) which provoked a lot of controversy in this particular community because normally people that are good at speed 
may not be as good at bouldering or top rope. But nevertheless, that's how the Olympics has decided to do it. So some of the people that are really good speed climbers actually didn't qualify for the Olympics this year. And next time they have the Olympics, they will separate them out. But I definitely recommend it if you are like Ted and have the ability to go watch sports on demand. I suggest that you go treat yourself to that. I did not stay up last night, but last night was the gold medal match for the men. And I guess by the time this is taping, it's a gold medal match for the women. But you can go back and watch that. And it's really, I think it's personally really fun. I'll just add one more thing, which is that they... Literally, most of the time when you're doing this type of climbing, you're doing it indoors because the air is cooler. And Japan just straight up said, no, we want to do this outside. So they made them do it outside. (laughs) And it was very hot. Yeah, humidity really affects those kinds of things. Yes. So that's part of the reason why people were like, well, this is stupid. Like, I can't grip the thing now. But whatever. They've been handing out gold medals. I think people, you know, they'll probably never win a gold medal in something else if you've been able to win in this bizarre format. But go watch it. If you want to see something cool at the Olympics, people can find me in my Olympic tweets at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. Our guest, Nicole, what do you have? Well, my sister just had a baby, her first. So I am a first time aunt. Yay. Yay. That was last week. And um, I'm actually a pretty new mom to an 11 year old boy. And I was able to throw him a, bang and birthday party last week where all of our friends and support networks were able to come finally and well now this whole delta thing who knows but thankfully we got in that window before we knew too much and we were able to just have a great time and lots of really important friends come so that was that was really great oh what that's awesome where can people find you online Are you on Twitter or how can people uh, see your work and and what you're chatting about? Well, I'm just on the Open Hands Legal Services website. It's openhandslegalservices.org. Great. And we will put a link to that in the show notes so people can click on that. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Faith Indovu, and the music is by Sweeps. If you want to support the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and hit five stars. That's a really easy, great way to do that. Welcome to all of our new listeners who are coming to get to know us via Mars Hill. Thanks for listening to Quick to Listen. I'm sure you guys all know how to greet podcast five stars based on the number of five star ratings I've seen for that show. Ted and I love to get email. Send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We realize we give lots of different perspectives and opinions on here. And so we really appreciate being able to hear from you as well. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.